Good morning. Our names are Randy and Rady Johnson, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 95, 1 through 7. Come, let's sing out loud to the Lord. Let's raise a joyful shout to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before Him with thanks. Let's shout songs of joy to Him. The Lord is a great God, the King over all other gods. The earth's depths are in His hands. The mountain heights belong to Him. The sea, which he made, is his, along with the dry ground, which his own hands formed. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep in his hands. If only you would listen to his voice right now. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Cora. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, verse 42 through 7. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their share meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brett. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 2, 19 through 22. Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders replied, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have made us your children through Jesus Christ. And now, as we listen to your word, we ask that by your spirit, you would open up our hearts to be able to receive and to believe what you are saying to us today. In Christ's name, we pray. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. This is so great. Well, it's wonderful to be back with you again after a couple of weeks of preaching up at New Life North. Uh, I, I basically, we started the Grow series a few weeks later at New Life North, and we're doing sort of a, a shortened version up there. Um, and, and so now downtown, we're actually, we've actually been continuing it um, for a number of weeks now, unpacking various parts of this text 
that we just heard this morning. Now, this whole series, Grow, is a series on becoming the church. It's a series on what it means to be formed together as the people of God. Now, even Family Sunday, we we do this at New Life Downtown. We do it just a handful of times in the year because we don't want to overwhelm parents with young kids who are like, I thought Sunday mornings were a break. You know, I, I hear you. But we do this because it's a reminder to all of us that faith is not a private endeavor, that we don't come to church to sort of just tunnel vision into what God is saying to me personally, but we come to church to remember that we're part of a larger household of faith. And sometimes it means that there's people with us in that family that we might not have chosen, and sometimes it means that there's people that we're surprised by that wouldn't have chosen us. And so here we are, we gather all together and we learn to practice forgiveness and patience and generosity and hospitality and all of the stuff that we've been talking about in this series. There's a phrase that I want to put up here just for you to see as kind of a a theme that we've been pulling, a thread that we've been pulling throughout the series, and it's this. There are practices that we do together as the church that help us to pay attention to, so if you're writing this down, you can underline that, pay attention to and participate in God's work. These are practices that we do not just because, oh, well, it's a cute thing to do, or Christians have always done this, or Christians have always prayed, or Christians have, I mean, that's significant in and of itself, but there's something more. These are practices that actually help us pay attention to God's work and participate in God's work. So we read our text this morning again. We heard it being read Acts 2, 42 to 47. I want to jump down to verse 46 and start there because that's where we'll zoom in this morning. Verse 46 says, and every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. Every day they met in the temple and in their homes and they shared their food with gladness and simplicity and they praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone, and the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. So the practice that we're going to talk about today is corporate worship. Why do we have to gather together to worship God? Why can't we just do this alone? And if you notice in verse 46, it says they gathered daily in, their, in the temple and in their homes. So there, was, there were large gatherings that they all were a part of, and then there were smaller, uh, more, more localized, communal neighborhood type of gatherings that they did as well. And there was a sense that some of this had a kind of formal rhythm to this. Every time they would show up to the temple, that was carrying on a tradition that they would have practiced as Jewish uh, followers, Jewish people. And then as Jewish believers in Jesus, they carried that on. They said, well, let's just keep going to meet there. And then we'll also find other places to talk about Jesus and to sing these songs and all of that. So their gatherings, there were some that were formalized and that was, there were some that were informal. Now, I'm going to take a gamble this morning and guess that for many of us as 21st century Coloradan American Christians, um, our problem is not going to be with informal gatherings uh, with other believers. We love that. We're like, oh, you don't need to tell me twice. I love informal gatherings. Like, let's go to the mountains. Let's go away. Let's do all of this other stuff. Let's have unofficial cookouts and all, you know, whatever. And all of that is wonderful. And that is part of the rhythm of the church. But I'm going to take a gamble that our biggest question marks, our biggest 
uneasiness is going to be with the larger, more formal gatherings of the church. And in our day, in our age, we are increasingly cynical about the gathered church. And maybe for good reason. We've seen people use this platform to uh, accrue their own wealth or sort of leverage it for their own fame or for their own influence. And so we've watched this and we've sort of become suspicious and we think, look, I don't know why we all need to gather together anymore. Maybe this is all just a silly American thing. Maybe we don't need it. Maybe this is all just a consumer thing. And I understand that impulse, and I understand the the desire to kind of say, can we just purge our conscience of all of this, all of these weird distortions that have happened? I understand that. But what I want for us in the midst of that refining work is to not let go of what is actually good and beautiful and true about being the church. And that from the beginning, we see these early followers of Jesus saying, no, we've got to gather regularly. So why do that? What was it about the temple that became this gathering point for the early Christians? Now, I'm not sure how all of us think about where God is. You know, maybe when you're talking to your kids, you're like, let's look up there. God's up there, you know. And then others, if you're like, no, no, God's in my heart. And you're like, wow, that seems like a crowded place, you know. And, and maybe we, we have a, a, tricky, a tricky time explaining where is God exactly. In the Jewish mind, in the Hebrew mindset in the Old Testament, their belief was that the word heaven was a way of talking about not some separate location, but rather an overlapping space. It was a dimension. It was a space where God inhabited. And earth was a way of speaking about human space. And so when they talked about heaven and earth, they weren't talking about, well, the earth is kind of our planet and heaven is sort of beyond the solar system and outside the Milky Way. They weren't even thinking like that, of course. They were thinking about God's space as this overlapping space over human space, earth. So heaven's right here. It's all around us. But beyond that, the Jews began to believe that the temple was one of the most special places in the earth. In fact, they considered Jerusalem the center of the world. Why? Because they were there? Well, sort of, but really because God was there. Because the temple was there. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth interlocked. And so you had not just an overlapping space where, oh, God's everywhere because heaven's everywhere and so God's here. They thought the temple was one of those special places where heaven and earth actually intersect, interlock, meet together. Now, this is important because for all of us, again, we have no trouble saying that God is everywhere. We love it. That's the reason why we don't want to come on Sundays, because we're like, I don't need this. God's everywhere. He's on the trail, and on the trail, I can get a few, you know, I can burn a few calories too, you know, or whatever. God's everywhere. We have no trouble with that, but is it also true? Might it also be true that there are some places where God is specially and particularly present? In the Old Testament, that's what temple was. Temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap, interlock and intersect. This is the place where, that's why you read stories of when they gather at the temple and they dedicated the temple and they began to sing songs and then a cloud of glory filled the place. Now the question is, so what happens to all of that temple stuff 
in the New Testament because not everything from the Old Testament automatically transfers, right? So what happens? In our gospel reading today, we heard Jesus refer to his own body as the temple. Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, you're crazy. Like it took Herod a long time. And we don't even like Herod, but it took him a long time. And we'll do, we'll, we'll take this temple, you know, it's not what we had hoped, but we'll take it. It doesn't quite remind us of the glory of Solomon's temple, but, but it's okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking about my body. That Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the point at which God and humans can come together. The Son of God, fully God, fully human. Jesus describes himself as the temple. And you're thinking, okay, this is great. This is wonderful. Jesus is the temple. So then, as long as I'm with Jesus, I don't need to worry about the church. Well, not quite. Because then as we keep going, this is what Paul does with the temple language. Ephesians 2. Paul says, as God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And then he says, the whole building is joined together in him. What kind of building is it, Paul? Is it an office space? Is it a school? What kind of building is it? It's a temple. This building grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. And then verse 22 Christ, in case you miss it, Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. This is Paul's way of saying, look, the church, the place where all of us gather together and we're kind of sweaty on the last Sunday of July and we're packed in here with kids and grandparents and we're like, oh man, it's kind of annoying and all of that stuff, not super convenient. And Paul says, yes, but there's something unique about this. Because only when people who've been joined together in Christ, who would have no other reason for belonging together except for the gospel. Think about that. You can show up at the community pool. You could show up at the movie theater. You could show up at the shops at wherever and say, oh, of course all these people are here. They all live, we all earn the same amount of money. We all live the same kind in the same neighborhood. We all do the same sort of stuff. But church ought to be the place where people come in and say, now, how did they end up here? Now, why is she here? And people are saying the same about you, by the way. Now, wait wait a second. Church ought to be the place where people say, there is no other reason that these people should all be together except for the gospel. And Paul says that very thing, that miracle of unity is the temple, is the place where God dwells by his spirit. The Celtic version, the Celtic spirituality uh, describes in the world these thin places, these places where the veil between heaven and earth seems really thin. I think one of the ways we could say this is every time the church gathers together, this is the thinnest place of all. This is the place where all of a sudden it feels like that moment where Jacob said, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't realize it. And there's angels ascending and descending. Something is happening here and I don't know what. I don't quite know how to explain it. That's why we gather to worship. So if we were to answer this question, we'd say, you know what? We gather in worship to meet with God. Now I know it's not the only place where we meet with God. Again, we ought to have personal devotional times, family prayer times, personal times that you can talk with the Lord all throughout the day, in your car, on your way to work, at airports, I mean, all of this stuff, absolutely. But there's something special about the gathering of the church where God fills this place with his spirit. And so it's, 
It's not wrong to gather together here on a Sunday morning at Palmer and say, you know why we do this? Because we kind of have an expectation that we're going to meet with God. We kind of have an expectation that as we come, some sort of encounter with the Lord is going to happen. Now, some of you, you've heard that language, and it's, it's been weird over the years. And so people defined meeting with God as like becoming weird, right? And I just want to show you in just a moment that we need not throw all of that out and say, oh, I've seen some weird stuff, therefore I just come to church as my duty, This is my religious obligation. I'll just come because I'm a good person and I want to set a good example for my kids. Look, I understand if you start there, but I don't want you to stay there. I want you to understand that every time you gather on a Sunday morning, something out of this world, if you will, is going to happen. We're about to sing and speak and listen to the living God. The God who spoke the world into existence. The God who called Adam out of hiding. The God who called Abraham out of his father's house. The God who called his church out of the world. The church, after all, is the called out ones. So what do we do when we gather to worship? Okay, we're going to work through this this morning like a little bit of question and answer, okay? So why do we gather? We gather to meet with God, okay? What do we do when we gather in worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Paul says, same letter now, he says, don't get drunk on wine which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Jason and I were talking about this recently on a, on a trip together where someone was saying, I don't know if all of the things that we do in church can really be talked about as a way of experiencing God's presence because, I, I mean, some of them don't fit with the tradition and this and that. And we said, hey, hang on a minute. There's this little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And he says, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Now, I know that some of your translations may not say it that way, and so you're wondering, are we just playing fast and loose with the language here? So let me nerd out on you for a minute, okay? Grammar, kings and queens. Be filled is the imperative verb. It's the thing to do. These other verbs are participles. Speaking, singing, giving thanks. You got it? Grammar, grammarians. And so when you, when you see it there, yeah, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, when you, yeah, that's the, that's the loudest amen we're going to get today, I think. When you see it that way, you realize, oh, the injunction to the church, if God, in Ephesians 2, Paul says God is building us as the place where God dwells by his spirit, and Paul says this is how you renew the experience, the experiential part of the spirit's work, then These are the things we want to pay attention to. Does that make sense? Gordon Fee, the the great New Testament scholar, also the son of a Pentecostal preacher, said, we don't get more or less of the Spirit. We just have the Holy, we receive the Spirit when we come to Jesus. But there's an experiential dimension of the Spirit that is renewable. That is renewable, where it's like, oh man, look, actually this is not all that mysterious. You have those moments with your friends 
When all of a sudden you're hanging out and you're like, oh man, you guys, it's so good to be with all of you. And you look at one another and you're like, and your friend's like, dude, we've been friends for like 15 years. And you're like, I know, but this is so great. We're all together. Or maybe you have that moment with your spouse or, you know, you've been married a long time and then once in a while, you know, you're doing one of your romantic date nights to Target or something and you, and you, and you get back to the car and you, and you look at one and you're laughing and you're like, man, I love you. I love you too. And you're thinking, wow, it's not that I, you ever stopped loving them, but that experience of that love became renewed in that moment. Does that make sense? There's something renewable about dynamic relationships, and our relationship with God is dynamic. So every time we gather together as a church, there's something that renews, that renews it. Does that make sense, you guys? Amen? Okay, so what are the ways? So Paul gives this list. Let's just put it on the screen and look at it one by one. Number one, we speak the word to one another. He says, Paul says, speak to one another, and he says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but in one of his other letters, Colossians 3, Paul says, the word of Christ must live in you richly, teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So we speak the word of God to one another. That's the reason why there's a reading of scripture and a sermon every time we gather, because this is one of the ways that God's work in us gets renewed, all right? Secondly, we sing to the Lord. We sing to the Lord. Have you ever tried to explain to a friend who doesn't go to church what we do at church? Like, what do you guys do when you gather together? Like, well, we, we, we sing. We start out by singing. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, you sing or like someone sings to you? I'm like, no, it's not a concert. Like, they kind of want us to sing along. Like, they put words on the screen. And your friend's like karaoke bar you know is there a bouncy ball like no there's no alcohol and there's no bouncy ball either actually come to think of it but it's interesting that Paul says and we sing and make music to the Lord to the Lord it occurred to me this morning as we were singing Jesus we love you how beautiful that is and how rare that is to describe a relationship with God in language of intimacy and love. And how remarkable that is. This isn't like some sort of, you know, official marching song or fight song of a team or a school. This is the language of interpersonal relationship. It's the language of love. And Paul says, sing and make music to the Lord. There are moments when we sing about the Lord, that's beautiful, that's part of the Psalms too, but there's this unique thing about Christian worship where we begin to sing to the Lord with a kind of personal dynamic. It's pretty hard to find a parallel to that. Where else does that happen? Do we sing love songs about other ideologies? No. Other religions, do we elevate certain figures and great teachers? And did the Greeks sing love songs to Plato? No. What, what, what are we doing here? There's something else going on. We sing to the Lord. And then thirdly, and by the way, let me say one more thing about music. Oftentimes, music gets this bad rap as being emotional. Have you ever heard that? Like, well, I don't know if we should be too emotional here, you know. Listen. Who made your emotions? God. What does it mean to glorify God with everything inside of you? It means all of it. 
That's why Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart and soul, mind and strength, all of it, all of it. Some of you, I know the way you're wired, you might lean a little more this way, lean a little, that's all fine. I'm not asking us to all be the same. I just want you to know that everything that God built in you is capable of being engaged in glorifying him. Everything. Everything that God built in you is capable of being engaged in glorifying him. Okay, thirdly, we give thanks. You heard a great sermon last week from Jason about giving thanks. And this word, giving thanks, in Greek is just is that word, eucharistio, the word from which Christians later on would begin to call the meal, the Lord's Supper, the communion table. Why? Because whatever else is going to happen at the Lord's table, it's the place where we give thanks. It's the place where we say, oh, Jesus, while we were yet sinners, you came for us. Oh, Jesus, before I knew how to call on you, you gave your life for me. Whatever else is happening at the table, it's the place of thanksgiving. And then fourthly and lastly, we fellowship with one another. In that verse there in Ephesians 5, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And to us, that just sounds like good interpersonal skills. Well, yes, there should be mutuality, submit to one another. But you have to understand how radical this was in the first century. We, we have the benefit of living in a Western democracy where at least we try, at least we try to treat everybody the same. Right? But in the ancient world, and, and I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not whitewashing any of our structures. We still got work to do, all of that. But at least we try. We have that value. In the first century, that was not a value. Everybody was fitted in a different strata of society. Everybody had a little designation where they belonged, and you couldn't exit that strata. You couldn't say, well, there was no upward mobility in the first century. You didn't say to a young girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because, depend, because her gender already determined a big part of that, and then her family and eco- economic conditions shaped the other parts of that. People didn't have upward mobility. They didn't have the freedom to say, like we say to our kids, what do you want to be? You can dream big. That's great. But in the first century, when Paul says, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, he's saying, all of a sudden, there's a new way of relating to one another a new way that levels out all of the structures of power and that doesn't totally erase it. Sometimes in society, there's going to be bosses and employees. There's going to be different structures of power and Paul will also spend some time redefining power. But the first thing he's going to do is to try to level it and reshape it so that all relationships now become mutual. We talked, we've talked about that at different times in in our series, but I'm saying that in the context of corporate worship for this reason. When we gather together, you might say, well, we can speak the word of God, so I can come, I can hear the word of God. We can sing, I can come and sing. I can give thanks to God and still not really need to talk to anyone. (laughs) You can do the first three things and still not talk to anyone. That's why people in our day, because of technology, are like, oh, listen, I've got my podcast, I've got my worship playlist, and I can give thanks to the Lord. I'll even serve myself communion, you know? <laughs> and people try this, and they do this. Like, I, don't, I don't need... And you're saying, wait a minute, you're forgetting this fourth participle. 
this fourth part of this, Paul says something about the uniqueness of our fellowship with one another is also how we experience the work of the Holy Spirit. Part of how I meet with God is by fellowshipping with you. Part of how you meet with God is by fellowshipping with me. Part of how we encounter God is by being with one another. So we, if we put all four, there it is. We speak the word of God, we sing to the Lord, we give thanks, and we fellowship with one another. Evan said to you earlier that we are introducing live streaming. I want you to know that this is not a substitute for coming with the church on Sundays. We're doing this to help strengthen your connections when you are traveling and when you are on the go. As some of us are not in control of those schedules or even if we are, there's just things we have to, I totally get it. We understand it. But the, it's a secondary layer to the, the central thing, which is that we gather together with the church as the church to meet with God as we speak to one another, sing to the Lord, give thanks, and fellowship with one another. Amen? I'll also add that one of the things that streaming also allows is for folks who aren't yet ready to take the leap to come and gather, and they're like, what do these people do on Sundays? And so in a weird way, it's a little bit like someone peering over the fence and saying, what is that family? You know, and, and maybe it's the 21st century version of those huge parties that the early church would have that the neighbors were like, we don't know what's really going on in those love feasts, you know. And streaming is sort of a way to say, what are they? What, they're singing songs to Jesus? It's weird. And then they said, maybe I'll come. But again, it's a layer removed. You follow? Okay. As the worship team comes and we're getting ready to come to the table this morning, I just want to end with Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was our Old Testament reading this morning, and I, I would guess that for those early Christians, Psalm 95 was probably one of the ones they might have memorized because it was a temple sort of song, a song about coming to worship the Lord together. And Psalm 95 says, come, let's sing out loud to the Lord Let's raise a joyful shout to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanks. Let's shout songs of joy to him. The Lord is a great God, the great king over all other gods. The earth's depths are in his hands. The mountain heights belong to him. The sea which he made is his along with the dry ground which his own hands has formed. Church, when we come, we come with joyful hearts. We come with joyful hearts. And then the psalm goes on. He says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. We come with humble hearts, hearts that are ready to repent and to lower ourselves. And then verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep in his hands. If you would only listen to his voice right now, every time we gather, we come with listening hearts. 